So last week was Easter, and of course we talked about Jesus' death and resurrection. And before we just move on to the next topic of discussion, I wanted to spend a little bit more time on Jesus and, and really the significance of who he was and what he did, because it truly is the most powerful event that has ever happened in all of history. And I've talked a little bit about before um, how Jesus fulfilled a lot of prophecies that are found in the Old Testament through his life in ministry. And I have touched on that before, but I wanted to go today a little bit more into it and actually walk with all of you through a chapter in the Bible that is nothing but prophecy about who the Messiah was going to be. And this chapter I'm talking about is the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And so what I would like to do today is just kind of walk through this entire chapter, a verse or two at a time, and talk about how what is being mentioned here and what is being prophesied about the Messiah comes to fruition through the life and ministry of Jesus. So just to put this in context, Isaiah was written probably around 700 years before Jesus. So, you know, putting that into perspective, we're talking about somebody from the 1300s describing in detail the things that would be happening in the world today. That's essentially how big of a gap we're talking about between Isaiah and when Isaiah was written to when Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies. So let's begin going through this at verse 1. It says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So the chapter begins by talking about the Messiah arriving like a root out of dry ground. And when we look at the life of Jesus, we can see that he very much did come out of dry ground. So his family had to move to Egypt in order to escape Herod and how he was killing you know, all the, ch all the babies two years and younger. So they had to flee to Egypt, which of course is full of dry ground. And they came back out of Egypt with Jesus. And so in that very physical sense, he did come out of dry ground. But if you want to go to more of a symbolic or spiritual sense, we could also compare coming out of dry ground to the virgin birth. That Mary had not slept with Joseph yet, that she was still a virgin, and yet she produced a child. So regardless of whether you're talking about that physical sense or that more spiritual symbolic sense, the Messiah did in fact come out of dry ground. And then it goes on to talk about how there was really nothing majestic about him. And of course, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, and we kind of talked about this a little bit last week, with the nomadic lifestyle that he had, there really was not that same kind of majesty that other kings would have. You know, a couple weeks ago when we were talking about in Palm Sunday, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and, and comparing how differently that would be to the arrival of any other king. And that was 
the big moment of his ministry. That was all of the flair and pomp and circumstance that he received. So everything else in his ministry was even less than that. He was not an outwardly majestic person. And yet crowds followed him everywhere that he went. So he grew up before them like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So then going on to the next verse in Isaiah. It says he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. And Jesus was definitely someone who was despised and rejected from his very own people. His own people turned their backs on him. In fact, they even tried to stone him. We read about that in John chapter 8, beginning at verse 58. Jesus tells them that before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And of course, when you understand that when Jesus used this phrase, I am, that he was comparing himself to God, and that would be a great heresy, we can understand why this would upset people so much. But Jesus was speaking truth here. He was God and is God. But they rejected his message, they despised him, and they tried to kill him, and eventually succeeded. Moving on to verse 4 in Isaiah. It says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Jesus definitely bore the suffering of the people around him. You can even see it in very visible ways through the, all of the miraculous healings that he performed. That he gave sight to the blind man. He uh, helped up the lame man and healed his legs so he could walk. He raised people from the dead, even. All of these afflictions that people had, Jesus healed them from. And of course, his healing went far beyond the physical to that spiritual healing of redeeming us from the curse of sin and death. And it then goes on to talk about how he was punished by God. And again, this is something that we talked about last week when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it was in that moment that the sin of the world was placed upon his shoulders. And just like how God can have no part of sin, when that sin was put upon the son, the father turned his face from him. And even talks about him being stricken, right? And struck. And, and of course, Jesus was brutally beaten before his crucifixion even begun. The crown of thorns, the lashes, all of these different ways that he was beaten and suffered, prophesied far beforehand in Isaiah. Then going on to verses 5 and 6 in Isaiah, says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. These verses in particular so clearly reference Jesus' sacrifice for the sin of the world. And in fact, his disciple Peter uses these verses in Isaiah and ties them directly to the crucifixion of Jesus in his own letters. In 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 24, Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Again, we are seeing here how these prophecies in Isaiah are fulfilled by Jesus, proving himself to be the prophesied Messiah, and it being reiterated and confirmed by other writers in the New Testament. Let's see what else Isaiah says. Going on to verse 7, says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. This illustration Isaiah uses here of a sheep being silent as it's being taken to the slaughter is so clearly mirrored in Jesus when he refused to answer the questions asked of him during his trial before Pilate. When the governors that were there were making accusations against Jesus and and demanding explanations, giving him a chance to state his case. But Jesus said nothing. He did not open his mouth while being led to the slaughter. And while this is taking place, Isaiah asks the questions again. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was even born on earth, asks the question, who of his generation protested? Who stood up for Jesus? Who stood up and said, this is wrong, he should not have been killed? And again, that is also seen at the trial of Pilate, where they say, we do not want Jesus to be saved, because Pilate said, look, it's the custom for me to let a prisoner go. Do you want me to let Jesus go? And they said, no, release Barabbas the insurrectionist instead, and let Jesus be crucified. And partly this was done because the priests had paid those people off to get Jesus to be crucified. But again, they fell into line. They did what was asked of them. They didn't protest it. They didn't stand up for Jesus. They simply took the money and said, let him be crucified. So he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, did not open his mouth, and none of his generation was there protesting it, but rather they encouraged it. Going on to verse 9 of Isaiah, 
says he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And we can read the Gospels and and see how Jesus was crucified, that he was sentenced to death like any other criminal, like any wicked man. In fact, he hung on the cross between two thieves. And they put Jesus at the center like he was the worst out of all three of them. But those who gain wealth through wicked means, that was the group that Jesus was put in with. Hanging there between wicked men, being sentenced to death. And after his soul was given away, and his body was taken, it was placed in the tomb of a rich council member. So he was, in fact, assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Let's go on to verse 10 now. It says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. See, all that Jesus did, his death and resurrection, was all the will of God. And we even have record of Jesus praying in the garden before he is taken away to be crucified, that the Father's will be done on that night. When he was crucified, it wasn't a wrench in the plan, it was the plan. That was God's design, so that through it, redemption could come through all, to, to all people through the work of Jesus Christ, who was taking the sin of the world upon himself. And it says here in Isaiah, this verse we just read, that he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, that he did not stay in that tomb, but he rose again on the third day, he is able to see the work of his followers, right? The work of all of us in the church who is taking this gospel message to others. He's watching all of this happen, and he participates in that work as well. That's why we have the promise in Matthew 18, verse 20, that where two or three gather in the name of Christ, that he is there with us. Jesus is watching over those who follow him, and he's not watching us from far away, but he is there with us, watching the work of his kingdom unfold. So even though it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and that he made his life an offering for sin, he sees his offspring and prolongs his days, and the will of God is prospering in his hand. Moving on to verse 11 now, it says, After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. And of course, when we look at scripture, 
we understand that it is through the knowledge of Christ that eternal life is given to us. That we are justified and have the price of our sin paid for us through accepting the knowledge and reality of who Jesus is and recognizing that he is the only one that can pay that price for us. That's why in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says that he is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. It is because of his suffering, because of who he is, knowledge of him, his knowledge, that he as the righteous servant will justify many and bear their iniquities. And now the final verse in this chapter, verse 12, says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Now truly, Jesus had the greatest portion of all. At the end of Matthew chapter 28, he talks about how all authority has been given to him. And then also, as Isaiah says, he will divide the spoils with the strong. After saying that all authority has been given to him, he's talking to his disciples and he says, Now go! I am sending you out. Go and make disciples. Baptize people in my name. Go and do these things. So he receives the greatest portion of all and then shares that portion with all who follow him. With all who are willing to say, Okay, God, send me. I will be your messenger. I will go where you tell me to go. I will say what you tell me to say, and I will do what you tell me to do. And when we are willing to obey God and go and do what he is sending us to do, he has promised to be there with us and to share his authority. It's not our authority. It's his authority that he portions out among us. And that last sentence in Isaiah even talks about how he makes intercession for the transgressors. And again, that's something that we talked about last week, where in Romans chapter 8, in verse 34, it talks about how Jesus intercedes on our behalf before the Father. So not only did he intercede on our behalf when he took our sin upon his shoulders and he paid the price for our sin, but to this day, he continues to intercede on our behalf before the Father. So I wanted to go through all of Isaiah 53 today to highlight how everything that Jesus did was prophesied long before it happened. And that prophecy was given to Isaiah by God. And it was God who knew in great detail what was going to happen long before it happened. 
And I say this to encourage you, because I know how easy it is to find ourselves in a situation where we're not sure even what is going on, let alone what's going to happen around the corner. And we're so uncertain about what the future has in store, and we don't know how things are going to work, and we sure wish that we did know how everything was going to turn out, but we simply don't, and that can scare us. That can intimidate us. And we might feel like we're lost, we're alone, because again, we don't even know what's going on now. We don't understand it, and we're trying to understand everything and we feel like we need to just put everything on pause to understand what's going on now before we're even beginning to get ready for what lies around the corner. It's easy for us to feel that way sometimes. But when we're caught up in emotions like that, it's important to remember Isaiah 53 and how 700 years before Jesus was even born, God knew in great detail every step of the process that Jesus was going to go through. In such a way that it, it sounds like it's written after it happens because of all of the incredible details that line up so perfectly with the life of Christ. But remembering that it happened not after, but long before. It highlights how God is not restricted by time restraints. He lives outside of time. He cannot be held in a timeline. He's greater than that. And he's the God that we serve. He's the God who wants to guide us in our life. And if God knew in Isaiah's time what was going to happen in Jesus' time, then he definitely knows today what your tomorrow is going to be like. God hasn't changed from the time Isaiah was written. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so rather than worrying about what our future is going to look like, we need to learn how to trust God with it instead. And again, that's something that is far easier said than done. And so I want to leave you today with that question of when it comes to your future, do you are you fearful of it or do you trust God with it? And it's one thing to say that we trust God with it, and it's another to put that into action. So I also want you to if you say that you trust God with your future, I want you to ponder the question of how do you trust God with your future? And there are different ways that we learn to do that. And so before I close this today, I want to share with you a way that I'm learning to trust God with my future. Right now, one of the things I'm working through is letting God give me an understanding of where I am now and understanding what he was trying to do in my life now, how he's trying to help me to grow in my relationship with him, and to line that up with the way that he has been working in my life. Because if I can see how God has been working in my life, 
and understand what it is that he's trying to do in my life now, that that's going to give me far greater insight into understanding because I'll see where I've been coming from and where I've been going. And just like with any kind of physics class, when you understand where an object has been coming from and what direction it's facing and what speed it's going, it makes it a lot easier to predict where that object is going to go. So if I can take some time to let God show me why he has been doing the work in my life that he has been doing and what work he is trying to do in my life now, that's going to help me in being able to see what direction God is going to be taking me in. And once I can see that bigger picture of what God is doing, it's going to make it a lot more easy for me to trust God with the direction he's taking me in. Because I'm not going to be walking into that blind. In a way, I still will be, right? Because I don't know what's going to happen next. But it will give me that little insight into understanding that what I'm walking into, I can at least understand what direction God is taking me into. I might not understand the destination, right? I don't know what obstacles I'm going to face. But at least I can trust in the direction that God has been leading me in so far and trust that he's not going to steer me wrong, moving, continuing to move me in that. So that's a way that I am working on right now, understanding what God has been doing in my life and what he is wanting to do in my life now to help me to trust him with my future. But I encourage you to take some time in prayer. Take some time to just talk to God and really ponder this question of how does he want you to trust him with your future? Because a God that can give Isaiah a prophecy like this in such great detail of what was going to happen with Jesus as the Messiah... If God can do that for Isaiah, and he's the same God today, you really don't have to fear about your future as long as you are trusting him and obeying his direction and letting him guide you where you need to go. So rather than fearing your future, trust your future to the God who gave this prophecy to Isaiah. And that's today's Sermon in the Pocket. As always, if you have any comments or questions for me, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me either through the Sermon in the Pocket Facebook page or email me directly at sermoninthepocket at gmail.com. And I encourage you, wherever you're listening to this, like it, share it, rate it, all of those things, comment, just to help build that interactivity, which boosts it up in the algorithms. You all know how this works just to help get the message out to other people. That's part of sharing the gospel, is taking the message of Christ and doing our part to bring it to those who do not yet know Christ. But until next time, thank you for taking the time to listen, and I pray that God will bless you as you go throughout your day. Thank you.